This is episode number 49 with Olympic marathon runner Magda Boulay. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you live a high-performance life. Today's guest is somebody who I've been admiring from afar and someone who I am really inspired by, Magda Boulay. I definitely don't see it as failure either. I see it as uh, lessons and, and opportunities to learn. If anything, I feel like I'm a poster child for <laughs> for when things don't go perfectly well and how I bounce back for it. But it's just like with anything, like you train, you get better. You are presented with challenges and lessons in your life <laughs> and you have an opportunity to bounce back in a certain way and you, you have a choice. You know, you have a choice like how you approach and how you react. And I have chosen to be relentlessly positive and when that's presented. And part of it also has to do with the type of sport that I have chosen to do, because that happens all the time in my event. How do you engage in the perception of what you believe is possible? Well, Magda Boulay continually raises the bar. Born and raised in the communist Poland, she moved to Germany and later to the United States as a teenager. With a love for swimming, she wanted to be more social and found running in high school. Eventually, she had the dream of one day going for the Olympics for the United States. She fell in love with running and she found herself in that sport unlike anything she had ever done before. After one failed attempt at the Olympic trials in 2004, she continued her quest and pushing for her dream. In 2008, Magda finished second in the Olympic marathon trials, and they take three women at the trials, and was awarded a spot on the USA team and headed to Beijing, China. The unthinkable happened, though. A freak accident causing an injury that resulted in Magda having to drop out partway through the Olympic marathon event. Can you imagine having something happen the week before the Olympics? Completely devastated, Magda went home and sought solace in nature with her family and had a decision to make. Let this catastrophic event define her and give up or figure out how to overcome it. And overcome it she did. Magda tells us about how she became an even faster runner post-Beijing and even found ultra running. In 2015, she won her debut at the Western States 100. That's right, 100 mile running race. It was named ultra runner of the year. Since then, she's placed top five at the Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc in France and has taken on more extreme events. In fact, the more extreme, the better for Magda. She is just completing the Marathon des Sables, arguably the hardest running stage race in the world. It's like a marathon plus per day in the Sahara Desert, self-supported, carrying everything you need. I can't wait to hear how this goes. I love this episode because Magda relays all the valuable lessons she has experienced through her dedication to the sport, dealing with major setbacks, her love for challenges, how to view competition in a healthy way, and how to get the best out of yourself. As the Vice President of Innovation and Research and Development for Goo Energy Labs, we also talk about sports nutrition, the illusion of balance in your life, and how she manages being a professional ultra-endurance runner, a mom to her 12-year-old son, and has a full-time career at Goo. She does a lot. I hope you enjoy this exchange with Magda. This conversation left me feeling inspired and excited, and I hope you feel the same way. Before we get on with the show, I want to thank Kuat Racks, this week's podcast sponsor. 
Kuad is pretty cool because they make super lightweight racks that are really easy to use. They're really easy to set up straight out of the box. So you don't have to spend all this time trying to figure out how it works. I know for me personally, if I have to figure out how something works and it's gonna take a long time, there's a lot of resistance, which is why certain things are still in the box, but not my Kuat rack. So Kuat is also a great company that is local in the United States. And I met the owner at a bike race several years ago, and it was pretty cool to just see somebody carry out their dream and start this rack company and see it become more successful. They're also getting into the ski market, so you can get racks for the top of your car, you can get racks for the hitch of your car, and they're really sturdy, durable, and reliable. So check out Kuat Racks at kuatracks.com and the link is also in the show notes. I also wanted to bring up my lifestyle brand, Moxie and Grit. It's M-O-X-Y-A-N-D-G-R-I-T, moxieandgrit.com. I've been designing some fun and funny designs. So it started with some socks and the socks are effing magical unicorn socks and my designs are evolving and I'm adding in new designs for submission and for manufacturing. So make sure that you follow the social media, Instagram, Moxie and Grit, and you'll be able to see all the fun designs that come out in the near future. It's been an interesting learning process of creating a brand and then trying to iron out all the details of how it works. There's a lot of operations and I have US operations and I have international operations. So that's been a growth and learning experience for me. And I really appreciate all the support and thank you so much to those of you who have been rocking the socks, literally rocking the socks off. I really appreciate you guys being here and listening to my podcast, sharing it with your friends. If you like today's show, take a screenshot and put it in your Instagram stories and tag myself and Magda. She's Run Boulay on Instagram. We love seeing that stuff. It's really fun to be able to connect with listeners and to see how each story resonates with everybody differently. So let's get into the show. Here is Magda Boulay. Welcome to the podcast, Magna Boulay. Hey, thank you for having me, Sonia. I'm really, so ex- really honored. I'm so excited to, to have show. you. Yeah, like we chat a little bit over email because I wrote an article for Elevation Outdoors about how really accomplished endurance athletes such as yourself handle fear. And that actually was published this month in Elevation Outdoors. Nice. I haven't seen it yet. I oh. gotta gotta check it out. <laughs> cool. Yeah, so I really wanted to have a longer conversation with you because you and I have known each other through your work at Goo and also follow each other online as athletes, but I haven't really had the opportunity to dig really deep into like who you are and what you do, and I- I'm really intrigued by you. Thank you. Well, let's get started. <laughs> All right. So you were born in Poland, which is what I, it's funny, I actually didn't know that until I did a little bit more digging like on Wikipedia about you. Yes, I was born and raised, and I lived in Poland until I was uh, in my teens. I left when I was 15. So, yeah, you can say that I grew grew up uh, as a young child in Poland. And, like, culturally, what would be the difference for somebody? Because we're only really familiar with growing up in, in the U.S. and maybe Canada. So, like, what's that like growing up in Poland compared to here? Right. Well, I'm in my 40s now. So if you really think about it, you know, where Poland was 40, you know, 45 years ago, I grew up in a communist country. And one of the reasons why, you know, I ended up uh, in the United States is because my parents, when I was in my teens, made a decision to, you know, to give us an opportunity to live a different lifestyle. So, yeah, I, you know, if that sums it up, I grew up in a communist country. (laughs) 
And how does that affect your, like kids always have aspirations and dreams of what they want to do. And I don't know what that would be like in a communist environment. Does that change how you view what you're capable of as a kid? Well, I think just the journey that I was taken because of my parents and kind of giving me different opportunities is what really shaped my mind that, you know, what's possible and what's, there is so much more to, you know, to go after. I think that is probably the biggest contributor to how I think and what I do and what I strive for right now. You know, the, the sky's the limit right now for me. Or it was when I was, you know, when I came here and I said, well, I can do whatever my heart desires and I need to just chase my dreams and goals. And there wasn't really, you know, anyone that was going to say, no, that's not possible. You should do X, Y, and Z. And this is what you're limited to. And was there any like pressure from your parents? Because they, I could see a parent saying, oh, well, we brought you over here to give you every opportunity and you need to do this. And did, like, did you ever have any of that? Well, it's, in it's interesting <laughs> that you ask. You know, I went to, I ended up going to Cal, to UC Berkeley to get my education. And then I graduated in uh, 1997 and really had a difficult time making that decision of, okay, well, now it's time to get a successful job. You just graduated from one of the best universities in the world. But suddenly there was this thing in my life called running. And I just started to discover it. I kind of hit a point in my running career where I discovered during my last race in college that there was something more in a tank than I was able to produce in college. And, you know, physically I was uh, just really getting into running. So I could see the light at the end of the tunnel and I wasn't ready to just walk away from it. And that was a tough decision. It was a time, you know, there was, it was in late 1990s. Uh, there were not this many female professional runners in endurance sports. Teams were starting to build, but the foundation wasn't really there to just say, all right, well, I'm just going to make this a job and be a pro runner. And explaining that to my parents was really difficult. They didn't really understand. And they really didn't understand till I actually hit that one race when I qualified for the Olympics. But that wasn't until 10 years after I made that decision to stick with running. So honestly, I don't think my parents ever bought into the whole concept of being a pro runner for the longest time. And that was, that was hard. You know, they always thought it was a hobby, despite me, you know, trying to have two, three part-time jobs to support that lifestyle and training before and after random jobs. But um, in my mind, you know, I was doing everything that I needed to do to get to that one goal. Yeah, it's funny. I can actually really relate with you in that regard because my family was not supportive of me wanting to be a pro mountain biker until I found like a certain level of success. And that's when they actually started believing. But it's hard not to have that support of your parents um, yeah. when you're trying to chase a really difficult dream that most people aren't going to get to. And I think that you learn, though, to surround yourself with people that will support you. Absolutely. I think that's what I learned in the process is you have to build your network of your support. And that is like the number one contributor to your success. I mean, you can't do it alone. And, you know, eventually I won my parents over and, you know, I feel like now they're my biggest fans. But it was definitely hard because I it felt like I needed to justify that what I was doing was real and that it was uh, meaningful and they knew it was important to me, but was I being productive, you know, in a way that I was going to contribute to society? 
and you know they just kept reminding me you have this degree from you know from UC Berkeley what are you going to do with it (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing because I know exactly what that's like but yeah so I mean that would be really interesting to move as a teenager to a completely different culture like did you speak English like what was that like for you like 15 is a hard age for especially for a female Right. So I actually, I made, uh, my first move was uh, moving from Poland to Germany. And that was probably the more dramatic uh, cultural change. Because I went from, you know, the Eastern Bloc in Poland to West Germany. And it was completely two different worlds. It was really, you know, right before the war went down. And that was a lot more difficult. A new language, new friends, school. Uh, I was trying to figure out my education and I lived in Germany about three years before we joined family in California that we had. And again, after three years of almost settling in, you know, we moved again and had to learn English. When I was growing up in school, Russian was the only second language that was available to us. And yeah, it was, again, a fresh start and making friends and luckily for athletics, because that's a common language. That's how I found my way into, you know, good social network. It was through running and making friends actually introduced me to running. And that was life changing for me, too. Were you doing other sports before you took up running? Yeah, I was a swimmer all my life. So I spent most of my time, you know, with my head down in a swimming pool. And then one day I realized, well, maybe it's going to be a lot easier to make friends if I actually you know, <laughs> stay above water. <laughs> and I met this girl who was a runner and I uh, decided to join uh, the cross country team for practice. And I said, you know what? This is so much uh, different than swimming. I still love swimming. Don't get me wrong. Like I, you know, when I see water, I'm always prepared to be in the water. It's it's like it's part of me. Uh, it's in my DNA. But running was definitely life changing. I learned so much about myself when I went for a first run with a team. I just knew right there that I was meant to do this and that suddenly I had this level of uh, motivation and desire to be better and competitiveness that I never really had uh, when I was a swimmer and I swam for, you know, for a decade why do ever you th- since why I was do you little. Think that is because like I had the same experience with running in particular, like I found running at the end of high school and I, I was no like fast runner by any yeah. stretch, but I figured out who I was when I started running and I was an achiever at all these other things, but I wasn't finding myself through any of those things. So why running? That's a really good question. I don't know. I think that we all have our talents. And for me, it just took a while to find what that is. And it's not just physically, it's like, you know, what do you get out of it emotionally? And for me, that just it was all like bundled into that one run, right? Said, hey, you know, I, my body feels good doing this. It's at an ease. I'm enjoying the process. I'm enjoying the moment. I want more of it. And that motivation to do it again is so important if you want to find something that you want to do for the rest of your life. It will get you out the door and running, you know, is that for me? (laughs) Do you think that it had something to do with being out in nature? Because like with swimming, it's a little bit different, right? Yeah, you know, but I think that uh, spending a lot of time, you know, in the pool or any other body of water, there's there's beauty to swimming. It's got to be beautiful to you. But obviously for me, the fact that I was able to go places, see places and, you know, while I'm running, not only am I seeing places, but I'm also spending time with people and talking to them was really attractive, especially when you're a teenager and trying to make friends, (laughs) you know, foreign country suddenly. Yeah, I can't imagine what that would be like. Have you been back to Poland since? 
Actually, I have, and I try to make a point of going every five years, and I've looked for opportunities to compete in Poland and running. And, you know, I would never run in Poland when I was growing up. So now going back and combining what I do with now seeing family and actually discovering some of the most, you know, amazing places in Poland that didn't I didn't get a chance to see. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I ended up going to World Cross Country Championships in Poland uh, a few years ago, and then also to World Mountain Championships. And it was incredible to, you know, to come with a U.S. team. I'm representing in United States and also discovering, you know, the country I was born in. And yeah, it was really special. That's really cool. Well, if you want to do a mountain bike stage race, I'm going in July to Poland to do a mountain bike race. Which so, part of Poland? I honestly don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I know you have to like fly into Prague and then it's like okay. a two hour, so two hours from Prague. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. So it's probably very close to where I grew up. That's really cool. There's a mountain range nearby and yeah, that's really cool. That's where the mountain championships were also a few years ago. So, um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. And Prague is also really beautiful. Are there a lot of Polish runners that were competing at that? Yes. And, you know, running in Poland is booming right now, especially ultra running and trail running and mountain running. So it's it's definitely, you know, I see a lot of growth just, you know, following different runners uh, uh, all over the world. And there are new races coming up. Communities are building. I remember when I was running in college. Again, I'm dating myself, but it was in the late 1990s. And my grandma got sick. So I went to visit her and it was granted it was like negative 20 because it was winter <laughs> it was super cold and it took a lot of motivation to get out and get my training in <laughs> but people looked at me like I was from Mars when I was out running and it's negative 20 now if you go to Poland there's just runners everywhere you know people are exercising on their bikes and they're running and partaking in all types of sports which is awesome to see it's very cool. So you mentioned earlier that you didn't realize that you could run at maybe an Olympic level until the end of college. I don't think, uh, I think that was still questionable. I knew mm -hmm. that I wanted to, you know, at the end of college, I realized that I had some potential and I can do this at a higher level than what I produced in college. And, you know, my number one goal was just to make it to Olympic trials. And yes, you know, it, as soon as you talk about making it to Olympic trials, you're starting to think, you know, can I make the top three? Because that's the process here in the U.S. Top three, you know, on one day out of the whole field, doesn't really matter what you've done before. It's, you know, top three, cross the finish line and you go to the Olympics. So that's in the back of my mind. You know, I, I knew that there was at least a possibility to chase that goal, but it wasn't until I really met my coach, which was a couple of years after college, and his name is Jack Daniels. If you ever get a chance to interview him, he is an incredible scientist and coach and just a life person, but he's got an awesome name. I mean, Jack I Daniels. I know. I actually read uh, that. I was like, is that real? And then I thought, man, like, I don't know if he's happy or sad about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. But a brilliant, brilliant person. You know, he's an exercise physiologist and an incredible, incredible coach that applies science to coaching. And it wasn't until I met him that I really bought into and understood principles of training and how lucky a runner can be. If you, you know, just stay consistent, you have an opportunity to improve 
if you can just limit injuries and downtime and stay consistent for years, you will get better. And I quickly bought into that and suddenly saw this down the road, you know, whether it was going to take me 10, 15 years, I knew that there was a possibility for me to run a fast enough time to have a shot at the Olympic trials and the Olympics and make the team. And that was just my hook right there. I was ready to dedicate uh, and stop questioning and having doubts about choosing that path. Mm -hmm. And I read that you became a citizen of the United States on, is it 2001? Mm -hmm. So was that before or after you decided I'm going to go after this um, Olympic trials? That was uh, after. So I participated in Olympic trials uh, in 2004. So it was my first U.S. Olympic trials. And I was already a U.S. citizen. And then 2008 and then 2012. It took a few years to... I made the decision to go to the marathon in 2000. So it took mm-hmm. me four years to prepare for Olympic trials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be really hard to have it all come down to one day in one race. Because like everybody has a bad day. And if you happen to have a bad day... At the Olympic trials, even though you're doing well all along, like that would be so hard. You know what? And that is a brutal, brutal commitment and reality. And it sometimes it scares a lot of people away, right? Because you are being defined by the results at only one race. And it really doesn't matter what you did prior to it. I mean, there are people that in our sports, the women in our sport that have lined up Olympic trials race, have not made the team, but have accomplish incredible results over a couple decades. But like you said, on that one day, you got to be on, you got to be on, you got to have your day and everything has to align. And that's not a guarantee. So committing yourself to something like that is really scary. So how do you get your head right on the day? Because like you've done all this preparation, everything's riding on the line. I'm sure there's some anxiety and like thoughts of what if, like, what did you do to get yourself to a point where you were in a good mental space to perform? Excellent question. And, you know, I can compare 2004 and I was younger and how I reacted to whether it was what was happening in the race or what happened after the race versus, you know, 2008 and 2012 when I was a little bit more mature. But, you know, again, having having that support system, like my coach is really down to earth individual and he constantly reminded me of, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you get up, getting up every morning and putting so much work into something that might or might not work for so many reasons? And one of the reasons is because you can't control other people. You know, if people in your race are so much better than you, you can't change that, right? You can't control it. So, you know, just really understanding that I want to get the best out of myself on that given day. And if that gets me on that team, that's good enough. And if, if I don't make the team, but still produce the best result for myself, I should be pretty darn satisfied with my journey. Right. So just making peace with that, that, you know, it's, you've got to control what's controllable and really not put that emotional stress on the stuff that you can't was definitely, you know, life changing for me after, after 2004, I was really hard on myself. I finished fifth, so I was two spots away from making the team. In reality, it was the last three miles where I felt like, you know, I definitely lost the race. And I definitely was extremely hard on myself. Just the way 
I approached the race itself, you know, during I, uh, the anxiety and the pressure that I was putting on myself was very different in 2004 versus 2008. I remember in 2008, I got up the morning of the race and I had coffee with my coach and we really talked about everything but the race. I was so comfortable with my preparation, the confidence that I did everything in my power to get the most of myself and that I was going to run my race that day. That really doesn't, didn't matter. Like if I make the team, it was meant and I earned it. If I didn't, because I got beat by better people and I still ran the best that I could, and that's okay. That's life. Then, you know, the people that should go and represent uh, our country were meant to go there. So I think I was just more mature, you know, in 2008 and a lot more relaxed. And that was probably the biggest difference. And ever since, uh, you know, I keep reminding myself that uh, having the confidence in the work that you've done is really, really important and setting realistic goals for yourself that are achievable and being okay with whatever the result is for the right reason. You know, a lot of the times we see people finish in, in second, third or fourth, and we see that as failure, but it shouldn't be. <laughs> Yeah, I think that yeah, your think approach to competition is incredibly graceful and it's something that we should strive for. You know, like it's not about just showing up and beating people and like being mean to people. Like people can get right. cra- people can get crazy in competitive situations. Like they have an alter ego that can come out. And if you can have a healthy relationship to the competition and to what you're trying to do, I think n- number 1 you'll enjoy yourself more but but number 2 you'll stay in the sport longer because if you're just there to yes. prove yourself against somebody else it's like wow it's, it's, it's not yeah it's not fun it's not it's not a fun journey if you take that route I totally agree with you I think one of the reasons why I'm still in the sport and have no plans of leaving anytime soon is because my competitors have made me a better athlete and I'm extremely supportive of them as well we learn from each other and yeah, and it's it's just it's fun to be part of the journey with, with them as well and celebrating their success. It's making us as athletic community in my sport so you know so much better. That's so awesome. So okay, so in two thousand eight you made the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And yes. like were you third in the trials? Were you first? Like how did that play out? You know, I think that one of, you know, my most uh, memorable races is the Olympic trials for so many reasons, like the way my race played out, you know, when you when you dream of that one race where everything just aligns, that was it for me. That was uh, Olympic trials. It was the day before the Boston Marathon. So you have wow. just everyone spectating <laughs> the Olympic trials that is about to the next day do the Boston Marathon. How lucky were we? That was such a special, you know, just uh, set up for for the women's race. And it's just all women racing the day before the best Boston Marathon. And it was a, a loop course. So it was packed like four deep. And, wow. you know, one of the strategies that my coach and I talked about the morning before the race, after we talked about recruiting, because I was coaching at Cal at that time. And I was telling, I was venting to him the day of, you know, Olympic trials, how one of my recruits that I've been working on dumped me to go to, to a different university. So that was this part of our, our pre-race chat. But at the end of our coffee, he looked at me and his nickname for me is Chewy. He goes, Chewy, so what are you going to do today? I said, I'm going to go out and run my race. And he looked at me and goes, what are you trying to run? Oh, he goes, 
what have you been training to, to run? And I said, 2.30 marathon. He goes, okay, what's the pace for 2.30 marathon? I'm like, 5.45. What are you going to do when you tow the line? I'm like, going to go out and run 5.45. So basically what he was trying to tell me is, if you go out and run your race, you're going to end up with the best results for yourself. And if that gets you on the team, this was meant to be. Mm-hmm. So go out and run what you're supposed to run and don't play any games and try to cover someone's move and, you know, end up risking, you know, your best result that you can produce. So the race we line up, it's about 250 women that qualify for Olympic trials, top three go to the Olympics. And I go out and I run my first mile, 545, and there is no one with me. I am running by myself. And the gap behind me and the rest of the 250 women grew and grew every mile. Whoa. And by, <laughs> by mile 12, I had two minutes on the field. Wow. And everyone is basically, you know, people are screaming. And I keep hearing random people going, she's going to die. She went out too fast. To suddenly, like, my coach popping out of, like, bushes going, Chewy, you're right on pace. So I'm just like on cloud nine, like I'm feeling great. Where is everybody? So everybody was sitting on the American record holder who was dictating the pace behind me. And she was the only one in the field who was capable of major negative split or running the second half extremely faster than, uh, than most of us. And that's exactly what happened. After halfway point, Dina Castor, who is our American record holder and has run a 219 marathon, um, dropped the hammer and started chasing me and caught up to me at mile 22, 23. And I ended up finishing second, making the team, but she dictated the, the race strategy and that uh, chase back. And I bet you that a lot of the women who decided to stay in that chase back didn't run their best race mm-hmm. on that day. So those are big decisions to make when an Olympic spot is um, on the line. And it really worked out for me. And that is still, you know, one of the favorite races of all time for me. <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah, I think that it'd be hard with the the drafting part of running like as like I never really got far enough down the line in running to even think about drafting. But I mean, you always see these runners clumped together. And so does that mean the people running with her were saving energy with the drafting? Well, it depends like what shape you're in, right? So it really depends on your fitness level. A little bit. If people, you know, running in a pack definitely uh, has uh, its benefits by as long as the people in front are running the pace that you are supposed to run. (laughs) If If you are running their strategy, then it's no longer beneficial. But yes, definitely. There's definitely something to sitting and you got to trust that the pace that the person is setting is beneficial for you and that you can mentally preserve and stop thinking about pacing and you getting pulled along or you can, you know, you can run your own pace and make sure that, you know, after 26 miles, you have executed the best performance for you, which is possible to do, you know, to do it by yourself too. Yeah. So I guess the benefits of drafting are not even close to those of cycling. Like if you were to be out riding by yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a little bit. It's not as significant as uh, as cycling. Mm -hmm. 
Cool. All right. So you made it to Beijing. You went to the Olympics. And what happened next, I think, is going to be really interesting for everybody to hear about. So, yeah, let's hear about this. Well, I was uh, incredibly honored to run in the Olympics. I mean, you know, it took me 10 years. It was a major turning point in my life and uh, not to even mention my running career, right? So I was in great shape. I ran my um, tune-up race just like a month before. And, you know, again, like fitness has shown and results that I was in the best shape of my life. I get to Beijing and I suffer a freak injury on a shuttle bus where I whacked my knee against an iron rod in the seat in front of me. My knee falls up. I have no range of motion within uh, a week of the race. And uh, it was devastating. It was just like, you know, suddenly like you're on top of the world and you kind of just get pushed off and you're falling and, and your life just crashes like in front of you. And, you know, when you put so much into it, and it's not that you, you, I made sacrifices, but, you know, I felt like I worked so hard and poor me, why is this happening to me? Like everything is going through your head and you're just angry <laughs> at life, you're angry at uh, at everything. You know, my, my son was at home with my mom. He was three years old and, you know, this was for him. And suddenly this is kind of just slipping from underneath and it was, it was not easy to deal with. All I wanted to do, you know, I showed up to the starting line already knowing that this was a disaster. I was able to run on it for about half of the race uh, before I, you know, got pulled off or pulled myself off from the race and really just walked away that day. And all I wanted to do is like get on a plane and go home. Like I was not in a good mental state. <laughs> and, you know, now... It, so many years later, I kind of regret that that's how I, you know, dealt with it. But it was definitely a life lesson. I remember just like changing my ticket. I left my husband there. I'm like, you go and discover China on your own. <laughs> I, I got on the plane and literally flew in, picked up my son from my mom and went straight to the mountains with a kayak. And I said, I need to be in the mountains on the lake and I just need to process this. And I just want him with me. And that's how I dealt with it. And it took a while to make peace with all of it. And my best running times came like all together, like from my PRs to what I enjoyed about running all really happened after that. Like I had a lot more enjoyment and success but I was really able to close that door and resolve that disappointment, you know, just with myself more than anything, and then go back to full-time training and move on. But it took a while. I can't even begin to imagine what that would be like. Like just hearing about it, I felt myself starting to like tear up for you because like the dedication to get there and to finally have that dream and then have something just like just random happen. I just, it's unimaginable that that happened. And it's just amazing how you've been able to thrive and rise up like a phoenix out of the ashes in a situation that would have just driven most people to quitting. Right. You know, I think I love running too much to walk away. That at the end, you know, I, you know, you hear this all the time when people do hit kind of the bottom of the bottom. And to me, that was kind of the bottom of the barrel right there in my running career. But, you know, you hear of people just not emotionally recovering from this failure is what they see as failure. And I was pretty confident that this was not going to end my running career. I said, this is not how I want to exit running. Like, there is no way that 
this is going to be my story, you know, and yeah, I had to convince myself. Like mm-hmm. I, it was, you know, more about, can I recover from this emotionally and love running as much or more <laughs> for the rest of my life? Or am I willing just to feel sorry for myself and, you know, walk away from all of it? So yeah, it sounds like what you did to emotionally recover from it is go back to your why, like the reason why you were doing this right. in the first place, instead of just right. letting the racing itself dictate for you what you should be doing. Right. It's that perceived failure. Like what do you perceive as success or failure? And, you know, I had to really dig deep to to answer that for myself. And it's easy sometimes talk about it. You're like, yeah, you just need to perceive yourself, you know, but it's another thing to actually apply it and, and make it real. And that takes time sometimes and some effort. But yeah, it's, you know, I often think of my journey. I mean, there were times where I wanted to walk away because things were too hard leading up to the Olympic trials in 2008. In 2007, in October, I was sitting on a couch, literally crying, saying, I didn't belong here. I, you know, I'm injury prone. I had an injury. I tore my plantar fascia. And then six, seven months later, I made the Olympic team. You know, it's, it's the challenges or opportunities presented over the 10 years, 20 years of training and competing that keep reminding me that, like, why do you get up out of bed to do this? You know, there's more to it than just one race. That's awesome. And so how has those lessons you've learned from failure, if you, if we, I don't even like calling it yeah. that, from something not going the way that you wanted it to go in a big way, like how have you applied that in your life since then? Well, I definitely don't see it as failure either. I see it as uh, lessons and, and opportunities to learn. If anything, I feel like I'm a poster child for, <laughs> for when things don't go perfectly well and how I bounce back for it. But it's just like with anything, like you train, you get better you are presented with challenges and lessons in your life and you have an opportunity to bounce back in a certain way and you you have a choice you know you have a choice like how you approach and how you react and I have chosen to be relentlessly positive and when that's presented and part of it also has to do with the type of sport that I have chosen to do because that happens all the time in my event Mm -hmm. as you know as a, you know, ultra endurance athlete yourself, you know that that is going to happen in any race. So those little lessons along the way or big lessons make me a lot stronger in my next event. And, you know, again, we have a choice of how we react to those uh, challenges and lessons uh, that we learn from. And, you know, I have chosen the, the, the happy route. Yeah. <laughs> I come out. Yeah. I, I think I would it's a like, it is. Like, yeah. You have to put yourself in situations where things could go wrong and have them go wrong in order to strengthen that mindset. Like it's not something you can just read in a book and then all of a sudden, okay, now I'm going to be fine if things go wrong. Like it has to hit the fan and then you have to figure out and work on the emotional healing process of how you're going to do that. And like my experiences are different than yours, but like, yeah, like I've had bad things happen and, and and it's, it's not easy to get over. Like, it's not something right. you just get over in a week or even a year. Like, it takes time. It takes, takes a lot of time. 
But again, I follow you on social media as well. And it's in the training that we do, we need to simulate some of those incredibly challenging uh, situations and both physically and mentally. And I see you training in a garage and, you know, and <laughs> super hot and humid when it's like snowy outside. And, you know, it's, it's a, it can be as simple as that, as like, you know, putting yourself in those really uncomfortable situations. And those are just like the little incremental opportunities that eventually, you know, by the time you, you hit that big stage race, that you've put your, your body and your mind through that challenge. Uh, and again, it could be as small as some of the training sessions to as big as something really didn't go right or accidents or, you know, you probably have more opportunities because you depended on the bike. <laughs> uh, I always like admire this about you guys that you put so much trust in your equipment. Like I, you know, for me, it's like my mind, my body, but you have another element and a factor that you depend on. And that's, that's incredible. That's a lot of trust. Well, the interesting <laughs> thing about it is that like, if I think back, there's only been one situation ever where I can point at my bike and say that was a hundred percent because of the bike. The bike right. is like, I'm really fortunate that I haven't had any major catastrophic circumstances. So usually the bike works, which is good. It's, it's yeah. usually, it's yeah. usually something about me physically that fails. So, how, how, or the environment <laughs> or the environment. The environment. Or, yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Like you said, like we have to put ourselves in those situations to grow that muscle stronger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that you had some of your best Olympic or your best marathon times ever post Olympics. And you are one of the fastest females in US history for marathon PRs. And that's incredible. Yeah, I think women are starting to run really, you know, a lot faster. That's not going to last much longer. But you know, I'm still in there. But uh, still, I'm still like, in there. Yeah. But at one time, I think I was the fourth fastest of all time, which was an incredible honor. And as you know, it's like when you push the boundaries of your own limits. It's really cool to see like years of work. And, you know, I, I can pinpoint to, and again, I remind myself of my younger self. I remember there was a time in the summer when I was traveling through Europe and my husband and I went to Oxford and we wanted to do a time trial and watch each other suffer uh, <laughs> on this little track where uh, Sir Bannister broke the first four minute mile, which he just actually passed away. And we were talking about this, I'm like, remember when my all out mile after traveling for a month and I was out of shape was 545 and I suffered so bad. <laughs> and it's like almost to like where I puked at the end. And then 10 years later, that was my marathon pace. <laughs> and that was my average, right? How incredible is it that we can train our body to adapt to something like that. It, it blows my mind. And that's the beauty about what we are capable of, uh, of adapting to, given proper training, uh, nutrition. I mean, nutrition is incredible for allowing your training and training adaptations to take place while you're putting your body through such demands. Yeah, so I want to move on to now you are a very accomplished ultra endurance runner. And I loved it whenever I saw that in 2015, you went to the Western States 100 and you won, right? That was, you know, I kind of uh, put Western States and, you know, my Olympic experience uh, right there. And again, for so, for very different reasons, 
But uh, that was an incredible undertaking for me. I was new to ultra running. And the year before my 2015 race, I went to pace someone else in the race. And I remember walking away and just going, all right, I need to come back here and I need to do this race. This is incredible. This, this, it's, it's a huge undertaking. This is something that is a little scary. It's hard. It's right up my alley. And <laughs> just seeing kind of the, the satisfaction of people crossing the finish line was just mind-blowing and like what it takes to cross that finish line. And yeah, I was hooked that day. And I said, I, I want to be here next year and I want to run this race and I want to cross that finish line. And again, this is a race where you need to qualify for. And uh, in 2015, again, that was another day where everything, everything kind of just aligned for me, despite going off course for a little bit <laughs> and losing being in a, in a leading pack. I bounced back and I felt like that was, again, I could have approached that moment very differently and I could have taken myself out of that race easily. But I think my experience... And having the opportunity to bounce back from worse things than just going off the course, you know, I do remind myself, I'm like, you know what, this is nothing. Like you've dropped out of the Olympics and you had to get up the next morning and face life. You can bounce back from getting off the course and getting back in the race. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, I think that gave me a lot of confidence and strength that it, I can still get to that finish line. And I ended up having a great day, great moment and such an amazing experience, like finishing that race, it, my first hundred mile race and winning it was, it's very special to me. Was that your first, oh, I guess that was your first hundred miler then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So That's my first. like mentally, how do you process changing from marathon to something that's basically four times the length? <laughs> you know, it, mentally you have to prepare way ahead of time. And the training really is, it's, I get my confidence in accomplishing whatever I goal set out to do through my training. Like I set realistic goals you know, 100 miles sounds really intimidating if you haven't prepared myself. And yes, a year ahead of time, it was a very intimidating goal. But the closer I got, the more training I put in that was specific. And, you know, when you're doing back-to-back -back long runs that might be, you know, 30 and 20 miles long Saturday and Sunday, and you suddenly are starting to see some adaptation where this is starting to get a lot easier. And then you, you sign up for a race that's maybe 30 miles and then 50 miles. Suddenly that goal is starting to become a lot more realistic and it's not right away, but that's the fun of it. Like, this is why, you know, this is why I do it. It's because it is scary and I commit myself to something and then work towards it. And that is kind of the biggest satisfaction for me that if I can do all of the preparation for it, take care of myself, treat my body well, that, you know, this is going to be possible. So it's definitely a lot more scary a few months out and then it becomes uh, less scary, you know, right before the gun goes off. And once the gun goes off, you're, it's, it's all fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you mentioned that you love it. You're, you're in this for the long haul because you love the sport. Do you think that switching from marathon to ultra has revived you? Because it's something that you had to really learn how to do like something that you had to grow towards. Whereas with marathon running, that's something you've been doing forever. 
Yes. So the answer is absolutely. The reason why I even started playing around with ultras is because I was turning 40. I was having my midlife crisis. <laughs> and, <laughs> Most you know, people buy people, like a sports yeah, car. Exactly. You sign up for I, yes. mile races. <laughs> exactly. That was my midlife crisis challenge to myself. And yes, I needed something. I needed something different. I knew that I needed to change things up, whether it was the way I was training. I spent the last decade running on roads. Despite racing on roads, huge amount of my training still happened on trails. And ultra running and trail running started to be a lot more visible to me because of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so suddenly, I started seeing where people race. I'm like, well, wait a second. But I keep pounding on roads and people are running around Mont Blanc. Like that looks like a lot of fun. So suddenly, you know, the permission to dream big was just there, right? Like in my face. And, and that was definitely, that was definitely something that was very attractive. But at the same time, you know, I always used to joke that, you know, the only reason why I ran the marathon, because it was the longest event in the Olympics, you know, if, if Olympics, uh, presented with the opportunity to 100 miles, I probably would have been trying to 100 miles. I think, you know, just my DNA, you know, there's something about me where I enjoy challenging myself and very enduring type of activities that bring me a lot more just satisfaction. So the transition again happened in my 40s. And uh, once I did my first, second or third race on the trails, I just never looked back. I had so much fun. The community is very intimate, very supportive. And again, being older and a little bit more experienced gives me an advantage on how I handle stressful situations. And I just, I love that. You know, I, I'm a lot more thoughtful. I'm not as reactive to when things don't go right. And that's what all these ultra races are about. It's uh, the fastest runner doesn't always win the race. It's a combination of your attitude, how you react, your planning and nutrition, very purposeful fueling during these races is an advantage. So I started kind of piecing all of this together. I'm like, you know what? This is going to be a lot of fun. This is going to be a great journey for me. And I never looked back. Yeah. And speaking of purposeful nutrition, you and I, like you work for Goo. Like what is your position at Goo? I'm the VP of innovation and product development. So I, you know, I get to lead a team of uh, product scientists and a sports nutritionist. And I get to work with athletes like you, which is amazing. <laughs> well, I think it's pretty awesome that the VP of innovation is somebody as accomplished as yourself, where you can be your own guinea pig out there. And you know so much about the body under stress in different situations. And you have a background right. in that. And yeah, I think that like, especially the Roctane products are just amazing. Like people always say, oh, well, like, cause well, my races are, are typically shorter than yours. Like, and for everybody who isn't familiar with running, like Magda's races are like 19 to 28 hours long. <laughs> so, so right. you know, from a, a gastrointestinal standpoint, right. running is even harder on the body than cycling. And I, I personally don't ever have issues. Like people will say to me like, oh, how do you eat 20 gels, like in a hundred mile race and, and have right. no problems. And I, I just have never had a problem. Um, right. But for running, like, I think that's a whole other animal. So like, how have you been able to integrate your two loves together with your job and with running? Right? Well, there's a lot of, uh, you know, just practice and, uh, and testing 
obviously what works. And, you know, I'll be the first person who says that everyone is an individual and you have runners that can handle three to four gels per hour to runners that mix gels with drinks to runners like me who have done a hundred mile race on just racting drink um, for, you know, for 20 hours and getting 300 calories per hour from, you know, from racting drink. Again, Running does expose you to different elements. There's the jarring, you know, that in cycling, you, uh, you know, in mountain biking, you actually have a lot more of that going on than in road biking. But, you know, that definitely presents a challenge when you're trying to consume fuel during moving, when you're just constantly going up and down, up and down, especially when you have a lot of vertical to cover it. So eating for what what the work and the race demands is really, really important. Sometimes we try to do it the other way around. It's like, this is what I like to eat and I'm going to apply it to my race versus what does the race or training demand of you and feeling and supporting that? Because even in running, different races, different situations will have different challenges, right? If it's nice and cold outside, you know, the temperatures are in the 40s and 50s, and there's not too many environmental factors that you have to deal with. You know, I can cruise, I can even eat a stroopwafel. Not a problem. In the middle of the night, races like Western States, when you've got altitudes, You've got extreme heat above 100 degrees. You're running in the canyons, up and down, 20,000 feet of uh, vertical. Those are all stressors on the body that prevent you from uh, properly digesting your fueling. And if you're going to put the wrong nutrients while your body is already so stressed, forget the running part, but just think about the heat and the altitude and the terrain, you're creating a larger demand on your body. So what do you put in during that stressful situation is really important. And the key is to make it as simple for your body to get the nutrients in so you can actually focus on executing, you know, whether it's your pace or in running or cycling. So I try to make it really simple and I don't apply the same formula to every race. I look at the race and I see what the challenges are, both like from fueling to environmental to what the conditions are going to be. And then I train like that for that race. And your gut has an incredible ability to be trainable too. And it will adapt to your plan if you allow it to practice along the way. So treating your fueling pattern and plan should be as serious as your interval session or your long runs or your, it should be part of your preparation. Exactly. Two things that we, two things we always forget, you know, we put so many hours of training, it's the mental preparation and the nutritional preparation. And we need to give both a little bit more attention when trying to get the most out of ourselves. Yeah, for sure. And I think that like goo products have an awesome balance of amino acids and the roctane products, which is super important for preventing muscle breakdown, especially for right. long races. And also like the electrolyte balance, like people stress about, Oh, am I going to cramp? I'm going to have this, that, and the other happen. And it's, yeah. I think it's, yeah, you have to figure out what works for you and then you don't have to worry about it. And like the less things you have to stress about on the morning of your event, yes. the better. So like that planning right. and that experimentation is super important. You know, you just nailed it. I think that, you know, when I show up to any race, I have confidence that my nutritional plan, you know, I can rely on 
And I don't really have to think about it. Like it's on automatic pilot. Like I show up to aid station. This is what I pick up. And, you know, that's one stress that you can just take it off the table. There is only so much energy that we have in our tank for whatever race. And I don't want to spend my energy thinking about, am I going to have, you know, this many calories? Does my drink have enough electrolytes? Do I have my, you know, branch amino acids? I I don't want to think about it. Like I have this figured out way before I just pick up my bottle. I pick up my, you know, whatever I need to pick up and, and just do my thing. Just enjoy actually the process of competing. All right. So one of the last things I want to ask you about is balance because like you work a full-time job, you're running professionally, you have a son. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a lot of inputs. So like, what are your, what has been working for you to number one, like maintain a level of calmness because overwhelm is a a really easy thing to get caught up in when you have so many different things demanding your time. And number two, like from a recovery standpoint, it's not just the workout that you have to recover from. It's like everything you're doing in your day. So how do you manage that? Well, that's a loaded question. And I think, you know, I, (laughs) you know, I think from the outside, people think that I have this balance thing figured out, but I don't. And, you know, a lot of the times I feel like I don't have a lot of balance in my life because, you know, I have chosen few things in my life that are really important to me. You know, my family is extremely important to me. My job and my running are important to me. So now how do I merge the three and make it a lifestyle? You know, I've been really good at convincing my family that going on, uh, you know, uh, to to the hot tub and the swimming pool is really good family activity. But in reality, like my muscles are recovering and I'm moving in the water. It's, it replaces the massage for me. So I think that really picking family activities that are conducive to my, my running has been one way of just, you know, combining some of the recovery stuff. And But after so many years, I've realized, again, like certain things I'm not willing to compromise, like we always have family dinner together every night. We sit down and we cook and that is extremely important to me and there's no compromise there. That is my family time. But, you know, I don't have my mornings sometimes with, with my family because I get up and I, I'm out training before work. And because of that, you know, that's sometimes very difficult to make peace with because I feel like I'm missing out on some important some like breakfast in the morning with my son. But instead, the no compromise is like, we'll always have dinner. And that gives me some peace, you know, at the end of the day when I go to bed that, uh, again, going to bed early and getting up early is, you know, is another way how, you know, I fit it all in. There's no secret, really. It's just, it's about time management and stress management. You know, I, I've made the athletic lifestyle be part of a family lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I go train. I might get up a lot earlier than, you know, my son and my husband. I'll finish my 20-mile run. My husband will meet me, you know, at the trailhead. And then I go hike with my son because it's part of actually my training, hiking, which is awesome. And then my, my husband will go and run. So it's, again, it's a family affair. And luckily, you know, no one is complaining. <laughs> I think they love that I drag them into places that they've never been before. And at the end of the day, they're very appreciative that they're a part of it. 
my husband was a sub four minute miler. He gets it. Like he is no longer competing, but he is a runner and he loves running. So he enjoys watching my growth and as an ultra runner and is extremely supportive. And with my son, it's one of these days he's going to hopefully be grateful that I have, you know, taken him him to all these amazing places. He can one day say that, you know, he's been to, you know, he knows what Western States is or Mont Blanc or uh, wherever else I take him, (laughs) take him everywhere. So it's, again, it's being very creative and making priorities like what's important to you. So you don't feel like you're sacrificing because I don't feel like I'm sacrificing anything right now. I feel like I'm providing, you know, an incredible environment for my family we're all getting something out of it. And for me, I really enjoy challenging myself. That's something that is extremely important, whether it's my job or my life, but running really provides that for me. It's incredibly satisfying to, again, to commit yourself to something really big, be a little afraid of it, be intimidated, and then, you know, just chase that preparation for it. And, uh, and, you know, it's never guaranteed that it's going to turn out the way you mentally envisioned, but it's so worth going for it. I can't really imagine a life where I wouldn't put myself in a situation that I wouldn't be scared. It, it wouldn't be fun. Like it's totally worth it. So, and balance is one of those things that I keep trying to fine tune, but I don't have it figured out. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's great advice, like just picking what your non-negotiables are and then just yeah. being flexible and, and continuing to just work on it. Yeah, That's, that's really yeah. inspiring for me as somebody who's like always trying to add things in and, and eventually like I want a family on my own. So it's just great to see that, yeah, like you can do it. Yeah, you can totally do it. And like I said, like the best parts of my day is when I get to take my son on trails and, and now my dog, uh, we have a new puppy. So, you know, if you can fit it, uh, you know, at, at first I said, oh, he can bike next to me while I run. But, you know, uh, I pick and choose which training sessions he can participate where it's comfortable for him to, that he's having fun. And, you know, I mean, the fact that I'm introducing him to time and nature I feel so good about it. Like it's a win-win for everyone. How old is he? He's 12. All right. Yeah. And he can, he can hike, he can hike. And you know, kids, if you let him talk about whatever they want to talk about, he can hike for two, three hours and not even blink. And you ask (laughs) him like, do you have any idea how far we've gone? I don't know. A mile, two. Yeah. Look who his parents are though. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. So it's, yeah. Your next race is a marathon de Sable and that's in the Sahara desert in a couple of weeks. And it's funny because a friend of mine, she lives here in Kelowna. She's an ultra runner and she's done marathon de Sable. She did some like hundred mile running race in Beijing or, or like in China somewhere. No way. Yeah. Yes. And I awesome. was doing a mountain bike race in the Sahara desert a while ago, like probably four years ago. And I, I was like, does anybody, has anybody been to the Sahara desert? And she put up her hand and it's like, yeah, I did this running race. And she gave me like all these tips on how to survive in the Sahara desert. And I have to say that my experience there is like a cakewalk compared to what she went through. I was way overprepared for like sandstorms and all these crazy things happening. So like, how are you like, first of all, I guess, tell people about this race because they might not be very familiar with it. And then, yeah, talk about how you're feeling. Yes. So, uh, Maritana uh, Desab is, um, uh, yes, in the Sahara desert, it's a stage race, which is, again, I think it's, 
the next uh, feature of my uh, ultra running, <laughs> I'm starting to really enjoy the complexity and logistics of what it takes to, to participate in a stage race. Um, but it's 250 kilometers about in seven days. And it's about a marathon a day. One stage is uh, longer than that, about 50 miles. And it's, uh, I leave a week from today. And uh, it's going to be about 125 degrees on average. Just so, 125 degrees. Like, yeah, I want to interrupt and say that I saw a picture of you on Instagram like a week ago or more where you're like in a down jacket and a hat and it's 108 degrees in the room that you're in. Yes. And that has been really, I mean, it, you know, I'm in the Bay Area. I live in, in Oakland, uh, work in Berkeley, and it's March, and it's really difficult to do some heat training outside. So even when I layer up and go for a run, it's still not hot enough. And again, I'm wearing like long sleeve, a sweatshirt, a puffy jacket, <laughs> and I have a beanie on and usually a hood. And it's still like we've had, you know, it's been like in the 40s, low 50s. It's not hot enough. <laughs> So in addition to layering up uh, for my runs, I started doing heat training in a little room and here at work, again, like working at Goo has been just an incredible blessing to like my running career. You know, when you get out of uh, the gym or we have a hypoxico uh, chamber that now I'm using as a heat, uh, heat chamber, I just have a space heater in there. I brought it from home and I can get that room, you know, up to like 110 and, you know, I layer up pretty well, and then I do step-ups for an hour. And that definitely makes me extremely uncomfortable. And it's, it's, not, it's not just, obviously, adaptation, physiological adaptation to the heat stress, but just mentally. Like, mentally, your brain wants to protect you from overheating, and it's telling you it's time to walk away. <laughs> it's, it's time to get out. And... You know, when I first started, after 30, 40 minutes, things started to get really uncomfortable. And now I can hang out for, for an hour and do step-ups, which it's a great sign of adaptation and just starting to be more comfortable with the discomfort. So, uh, yeah, that's been a huge part in the last week. Yeah, I usually uh, approach heat training within about two weeks of the race. So I'm going to do it all the way till the day I depart. And then, you know, being in a desert for a day and a half prior to the race, uh, yeah, should be enough time for me to be fully adopted. Yeah, it sounds like yeah, it's going like to be a crazy adventure and like running in the sand and like getting sand in your shoes. And there's like a lot of details there for that race in particular. You know, your pack that you're carrying, because again, forgot to say that it's a self-supported race. So I have a nice spreadsheet. I actually just sat down with our sports, sports nutritionist and we went through my breakfast and lunch and dinner and all the calories that, you know, I need and, you know, from snacks. And again, the challenge of making it as light as possible, having all the nutrients that I, you know, I need for the race. And I'm going to carry all of this in this backpack along with my sleeping bag and any other mandatory gear that's required, like venom pump. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I've been doing a lot of preparation by, you know, commuting to work, running with a weight vest or a heavy pack. And that has been new to me. I've been hiking in the past with a weight vest to prepare for some of the vertical races, but running in a with something that's, you know, 20 pounds on you has been, uh, has been quite, yeah, 
quite a lot of work and very beneficial. Like I am really starting to enjoy it in the first, you know, two, three weeks. It was hard, but now again, after seeing some consistency and adaptation, like, wow, I'm feeling stronger. I'm feeling I'm prepared. And the running in a sand is not going to be easy with that pack on you. <laughs> in 125 degrees. So oh I welcome all the, all the challenges and I need just like mentally, I'm still a little scared, which is good. There is some butterflies in my tummy, but if I didn't have those butterflies in my tummy, it means, I, you know, I wouldn't care as much as, you know, as I need to. And I need to take this seriously because this is a major undertaking and it's incredible that so many people do it. I will be doing this with like another 1,500 crazy Whoa, people. 1,500. <laughs> yes. I think it's something around 1,300 or 1,500 people from all over the world. So, so cool. Um, yeah, that is really cool. And the fact that I get to meet all these people and spend a full week doing this with like-minded people. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, you can just tell how excited you are. Like, I'm, I'm excited for you. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, once you've started doing these hard things, to get that butterfly feeling, you have to keep pushing the limit even further and even further. And it's almost like being an addict to a drug and you need to keep putting in even more. And I can totally relate with that because, yeah, like, I've done so much now as a mountain biker that, like, I don't really get that butterfly in my stomach feeling very often. And... They're, like the things that would cause that are pretty extreme. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're right. And I think that kind of shows my evolution. Um, <laughs> you know, going from, you know, 5Ks to marathons to, you know, to Western States. Now this race, and I keep kind of thinking like, how extreme is it going to get before yeah. before I decide to go ba- maybe maybe to, to, to running back on the track because that's going to be so scary. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, like going back to racing a mile might be a lot more scary than doing marathon the sub. And when that happens, I'll be ready for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I think that marathon de sab is probably from like I'm not an expert in um like running stage races, but I, I am actually quite interested in someday doing that. And that yeah. one sounds to me like it's the hardest one out there, like by a long shot. Yeah, it's definitely a little scary. Just the complexity of the environment and the conditions and, and how, again, you rely on this. Your, your, your pack has to be able to get you to that finish line. And every single day, you have to make sure that the food that you chose to put in that pack on day one will work for you on day seven. So, yeah, it's but it's the logistics and again and, and logistics and complexity uh, and your attitude towards it's going to be all just, you know, extremely important in, in that race and how successful. But no matter what, it's going to be an, an amazing, an amazing experience. I think I'll walk away from it, you know, a, a different person and I'm going to learn something about myself. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your amazing stories and knowledge with us today. Where can people follow you to follow uh, your adventures? Instagram and Twitter, uh, Ron Boulay. Cool. I'll definitely put that in the yeah. show notes. And this episode will actually be coming out after you've already done the race or after you've left. But I'll, I'll post something before this is published. That way people can get like a taster and follow you during the race and then listen to this afterwards. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you. It's so awesome to talk to you. 
That was so much fun talking to Magda. I've been smiling all day after recording that episode. Before you guys take off, I have a few little things to bring up. Number one is if you are interested in plant-based nutrition, I'm inviting you to my Facebook group, Plant Power Tribe with Sonia Looney. So just go to the show notes or go to Facebook and search Plant Power Tribe. Everybody's welcome. It's not like some weird vegan Facebook group. It's just a place where we can talk about nutrition, where we can post recipes and where we can just help support one another to eat more plants. I also have a free monthly newsletter and it's not gonna clog up your inbox. So go to sonyalooney.com and a prompt will come up where you can sign up. Basically, I give you information every month of things I've been up to, cool articles that I've read, and also a summary of the podcasts that have been done for the month. Big shout out to Kuat Racks, our sponsor for the show. Really appreciate the support. And if you wanna make your life simpler, get a bike rack. I can't believe how long I waited for getting a bike rack. I used to just take the back seats out of some of my cars. I had a two door 94 Nissan Sentra for the longest time. And I just took the back seat out and used that. And I have to tell you that having a bike rack makes life a lot easier. Big thank you to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon. It really helps with the growth of the show, and I can't thank you enough for that support. It means the world to me. And lastly, another way to support the show is to leave a review on iTunes. It only takes a few seconds. Go to iTunes. The easiest way is on your computer. Find my show, go to ratings and reviews, and leave a review. I like reading them. Everybody else can read them, and it helps get the word out about the show. That's it for this week's podcast. Thank you so much and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.